Good morning. Scripture reading this morning comes from Galatians, the fifth chapter. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the spirit of righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, Serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoked, and envying each other. Thank you, Nate. Billy Joel says, Come out, Virginia. Don't let me wait. You Catholic girls start much too late. But sooner or later it comes down to fate. I might as well be the one. They showed you a statue and told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. 
but they never told you the price you pay for the things that you might have done. Only the good die young. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are so much more fun. You know that only the good die young. Today we're continuing in our series, our series called Barriers, Barriers to Belief. Uh, We all have barriers in our life, barriers that hinder us from having something that we would like to have, from experiencing something that we would like to have. Uh, Maybe you really love roller coasters. Uh, You love roller coasters, you love amusement parks, but for some reason in recent years, uh, you get nauseous every time you go on an amusement park ride, so you can't go. It's a barrier that is hindering you from having something that you want to have. And what we're looking at today is the fact that for many people in our culture, there are barriers to belief. There are barriers that hinder them from embracing belief in God. That maybe, maybe you're here and you're, uh, you're, you're, or you're listening online and, and you would, you, you're drawn to belief in God. Uh, you would like to believe in God. You'd like to, to follow uh, God. You, you've heard a lot about um, the, the God of the Bible, and maybe you even have Christian friends that you really respect, and, and you're really drawn to it, but there are these barriers, these barriers that hinder you from fully embracing the faith. And so we've been looking at various questions that, that are common in our culture that hinder people. And, and, and so last week we looked at the issue of suffering. Uh, suffering in this world is, is a big barrier for a lot of people. Uh, we just sort of asked this question, if, if if the God of the Bible really exists, and what the Bible tells us is that he's all-loving and all-powerful, then why is there suffering in this world? How, how do you reconcile those? And so we looked at that last week. This week, what we're looking at is that it seems as though to follow uh, what the Bible teaches is sort of to impose upon yourself sort of self-inflicted suffering, right? That, that if, you, if you embrace what the Bible teaches about how to live, that it's incredibly restrictive, that it restricts your freedom. Why would you, why would you want to live that way? Right? Billy Joel says that uh, they showed you, a, excuse me, they built you a temple and locked you away. Right? So if, you, if you, you know, this worship of, of the God of the Bible and everything, it's really just a prison which hinders you from being able to really experience life. And, and so only the good die young, right? Meaning, meaning that, that the, the people who are good, religious people, uh, you never experience life. You never experience life, so you're like a kid who never gets to go out and experience his life because you've just put all of these restrictions on you. And so we say, why? Why would I want to, to embrace this belief and follow this way when it seems so restrictive? It restricts my freedom. So that, that's the question. And, and uh, there's uh, three points to this sermon. This is three points in a poem today. This is kind of standard classic. I'd probably get an A from my preaching professor with this. Uh, so it's three points in a poem. I've already read the poem. So now here come the three points. The first, here's the first point. It's answering this question, is Christianity restrictive to our freedom? And the first point is this. Christianity isn't restrictive at all of our freedom. The first point is Christianity isn't restrictive at all of our freedom. The second point is that Christianity is the most restrictive way of all. So the first point is that Christianity isn't restrictive at all. The second point will be that Christianity is the most restrictive way of all. And the third point is that Christianity isn't restrictive at all. 
First point, Christianity isn't restrictive at all. Second point, Christianity is the most restrictive way of all. And third point is that Christianity isn't restrictive at all. Okay, here we go. First point, Christianity isn't restrictive at all. We see these three points emerging in this text uh, in Galatians. Paul writing this letter to this church in Galatia. And we see these three points emerge. The first one, Christianity isn't restrictive at all, comes right at the beginning. Verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That the entire message of the coming of Christ is to, is to free us, to give us true freedom. And, and in particular, what he's dealing with in this passage is to free us uh, from that religious impulse that wants to restrict our lives and restrict our freedom. He's addressing that religious impulse to want to restrict our lives and restrict our, our freedom. And in particular, the situation he's dealing with is that these, uh, these, in his church, there is a group that is saying that everybody who comes to faith in Jesus must adhere to these elements of the Mosaic law. They must adhere to circumcision and they must adhere to um, uh, the dietary restrictions and whatnot, and, and saying, if you're, you know, if you're going to be a part of our community, then you have to adhere to these restrictions. And what Paul is saying is, no, if, if you try to get them to hold to these restrictions, if you force them, you're going against the God of the Bible. Now, you're thinking, well, that's weird, because isn't it the Bible that gives those restrictions in the first place? Right? I mean, isn't it? And you're right. I mean, you go back into Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, and, and, and this is where God commands his people to be circumcised and commands them to follow certain food laws and, and all, all of this. But as, as I've said before, one of the things that we, we need to know, actually, is that when God commanded the Israelites to be circumcised and commanded them to follow these dietary restrictions, um, it would have been about as restrictive in that time period as if God commanded us to take a shower in the morning and have a drink of coffee, a cup of coffee. That's actually about as restrictive as it would have been. Because, you see, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, when these commands were given, it's circumcision and these food laws, this was actually incredibly common. This was part of what most of the ancient Near Eastern cultures did. The Israelites weren't the only ones to circumcise people, and they weren't the only ones to follow these dietary restrictions. And so when God was giving them these commands, uh, he, he wasn't giving them these commands. These, these uh, cultural commands weren't a way of separating them from other cultures culturally. That's not what he was doing. What he was actually doing was he was taking common everyday practices and infusing them with new meaning. He was taking common everyday practices and he was infusing them with new meaning that would point them to God. He was sanctifying these practices and using them to to get people to to point themselves to God. He was redeeming the everyday practices of the culture. Now, what happened was that over time, the culture around them changed, beginning with the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines came and and then later on, Hellenistic culture came and There seems to be some connection, actually, between the Philistines and later Hellenistic culture. And so then by the time of Jesus and Paul, now the surrounding culture, they didn't didn't do this. And so now these practices did uh, actually restrict them in the sense that it hindered their ability to be culturally engaged with the people around them. So when Paul and Jesus 
coming, when Jesus comes and declares these food laws not necessary for Gentiles coming in, what he's doing is he's not going against the God of the Old Testament. It's not like the New Testament's all about freedom and the Old Testament was all about restriction and whatnot. He's highlighting the broader principle that has always been a part of the God of the Bible, and that is that he is a God of freedom. The central narrative for the people of Israel is what? Freedom from slavery deliverance from Egypt. So he's not, he's not, it's not like the God of the New Testament is about freedom and the God of the Old Testament is all about restriction. God of the Bible has always been about freedom. But the, the people in Galatia seem to have missed the forest for the trees. And so they're, they're giving into this religious impulse to restrict. Christianity isn't restrictive at all. Christianity isn't culturally restrictive, and it's not socially restrictive. First of all, it's not culturally restrictive. Uh, In Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, which has has influenced significantly this whole series, kind of given me a a broader way of approaching this entire series, but one of the things that he notes is that of, of all of the major world religions and really all worldviews, Christianity has proven to be uh, the most culturally flexible. Of all worldviews, when you compare Christianity to other world religions, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Confucianism or Islam, certainly today in our global village, these various religions are making their way into all different cultures. But compared to Christianity, they have proven to be very inflexible. That When you look at where the center of these religions is located, that the center of these religions is still located in their place of origin. So for Islam, the center of Islam still is in the Middle East. But when you look at Christianity, what's interesting is that historically, the center of Christianity, the cultural center of Christianity has just moved and changed dramatically over time, right? It started in in Palestine, started out as an Israelite Jewish religion, then it extended to the Gentiles, and then it became largely a Gentile religion, and then then the northern barbarians, eastern northern barbarians, they kind of took over, and then it became this northern barbarian religion, and and then it moved to western Europe, and western Europe became the cultural center of Christianity, and, and then the cultural center shifted all the way to the United States, and, and the United States was the cultural center of Christianity, and now the cultural center of Christianity has shifted again, and now the cultural center of Christianity is moving to Africa and to Asia, and so it has proven to be remarkably flexible culturally. In fact, it seems to be more flexible than even modern-day secularism, at least, at least atheism. It's, it's more flexible. What's interesting is that atheism is having a difficult time uh, connecting with uh, people in Africa <laughs> because, because sort of belief in the spiritual world is just a rich and vibrant part of their culture. And so to the Africans reading the Bible and the, the spiritual world of the Bible, it, it connects so much more with them culturally. So you see, Christianity has proven to be the least culturally restrictive worldview of all. So it isn't restrictive culturally. It's also not restrictive socially. Christianity is not restrictive socially. And let's just get really pra- uh, practical here. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. When you talk about social restriction, you, you, think, of, you think of these areas, right? You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which is a, a, a trinity that sort of is a, a, a more contemporary version of the older trinity of wine, women, and songs. Another way in which they used to talk about the same kinds of social issues. And what we find is, is, that, 
is that the Bible is not restrictive in this, because here's what you need to see. Let's just look at these here for a minute. Uh, let's look at, uh, well, well, we'll start with, uh, with alcohol, wine. Uh, the Bible does not prohibit alcohol. The Bible says, Psalm 104.15, he makes wine that gladdens the heart of man. Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine, that throughout the Bible we see that, that, that wine is, is seen as a gift, from, a gift from God. The Bible is, is not restrictive about sex. It's not against sex. I mean, read through Song of Solomon. Uh, uh, wait till the kids go to bed. This is not good for family devotions. Read through Song of Solomon after the kids go to bed. That's when you read Song of Solomon, and you're going to find some of the most graphic descriptions of sexual love imaginable. It's not restrictive with regards to sex. It's, it's, it's not restrictive with regards to rock and roll. We'll just use that as a way of talking about entertainment, sort of, you know, uh, just uh, contemporary mainstream entertainment. It's, it's, not, it's not restrictive. I I lived in, in Boston for a couple of years and was the music minister for a church in Boston. And just because of the location, because of the colleges that were in that area, it's been remarkable to, to see where many of the musicians that were on the worship team have ended up in the last 10 years. Um, one of them, the trumpet, a trumpet player in the worship team, just won a Grammy for playing on Beyonce's last album. Uh, they're, uh, one of the lead guitar players... Um, I've seen him play on The Tonight Show, on Jimmy Kimmel. I've seen him play on a number of different late-night shows with various different bands over the last 10 years. Uh, one of our keyboardists, he wasn't even the main keyboardist. He was the backup keyboardist, uh, had just finished five years as one of the arrangers for American Idol. And so these three solid Bible-believing Christians have not just been consuming what you might call mainstream entertainment. They've actually been involved in the industry producing a lot of mainstream, uh, you know, entertainment and whatnot. And, and, and they understand that, that the Bible doesn't restrict them from doing this. Now, uh, of course, anybody who's involved in the entertainment industry, or any industry for that matter, it, we wants to, to, to think critically about our engage, engagement, whatever industry uh, you're involved in, what we're called to be salt and light in 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 our world, which means we're called to preserve it, right, to try in whatever ways we can to keep whatever industry you're in from sliding more and more into decadence. That's, that's, that's what we're called to do, but we're not restricted from being involved in these things. And, and, and the reason for this, this is grounded in a creational theology. It's grounded in the understanding that, that this is actually God's world. God created this world. Originally, he created it good. It's tainted by sin. Everything's tainted by sin. But still, nonetheless, it bears his, his image. It bears his fingerprints. All of creation bears his fingerprints. In fact, let me just read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For nothing God, or for, excuse me, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. You, you see, far from, from being uh, something that comes from God, restriction seems actually to be something that comes from the demonic realm. 
Because everything in this world ultimately was God's. He created it good, though tainted by sin. And I've said this before, everything in this world has a redemptive thread. Everything has a redemptive thread. Every song, every book, every movie, every, everything that has ever been written has a redemptive thread. Tainted by sin, some more than others, no doubt. But everything has this redemptive thread. I mean, even let's... Let's look at good old Billy Joel here, Only the Good Die Young. I mean, this song, I don't, you know, I don't really know a lot about this song. I'm not a, I'm not a Billy Joel musicologist. I, I haven't done an exegetical study of this song, so I don't really know. But I think this song appears to be attacking a sort of biblical worldview and a biblical social ethic, right? So it seems to be a, a, opposing God. But what I find ironic about it is that the, the creativeness, the, the poetic creativity and the artistic expression of Billy Joel just bears witness to the fact that he was created in the image of God. That his artistic creativity is something that, that even if he's attacking it, it's, it's still, look, man, I, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm a big Dave Matthews fan, uh, Dave Matthews band. And, and Dave Matthews is actually an outspoken atheist. And so a lot of his songs are very, very atheistic, but I, I, I find it incredibly ironic. I'm, I'm listening to the, mu- the music and the, the, the poetry of the way in which he writes and, and the artistry of the musicians. And I'm thinking to myself, when you listen to the music, how can you not believe in God? How can you not see the, 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 the fingerprints of God written on your abilities to write such creative, creative music? You see, everything has a, has a redemptive thread. So you see... Christianity isn't restrictive at all. That's the first point. The second point is, Christianity is the most restrictive way of all. We see this, well, it's hinted at in verse 6, but it comes to full expression in verses 13 through 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Christianity isn't isn't about a life that's centered on rules. It's it's not about rules. What it means to be a Christian isn't about following rules. Um, but, of course, being a, being a Christian isn't about not following rules either. It's not like Christianity is all about following rules or, no, Christianity is about not following rules. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate that we don't, we don't follow. It's not about following rules, and it's not about not following rules. Those, those two, two poles are, are, to use the kind of theological language, legalism on one hand and antinomianism on the other hand. Legalism is an obsession with rules Antinomianism is an obsession with not following rules. And as Christians, we're not obsessed with following rules, but we're also not obsessed with not following rules. What are we obsessed with? We are obsessed with love. Love is, is what centers everything that we do. This is what he's saying, that, that, that the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and of course, here Paul is, is dealing particularly, because of the context that he's dealing with, he emphasizes loving your neighbor, but we know that this goes hand in hand with loving God. Jesus, when asked, uh, you know, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love God and love your neighbor, that if you do that, you are 
you are, uh, you're summing, that sums up the entire law, loving God and loving your neighbor. So for Christians, everything that we do is centered on love. And here's, here's what we need to see. Love is way more restrictive than rules could ever be. Love is way more restrictive than rules could ever be. The problem with rules isn't that they're restrictive, it's that they're not restrictive enough. Love is way more restrictive than rules could ever be because rules, you see, there's a fine, just by their definition, there's a finite degree to which they can limit you. That you can always find your way, it just, it's, well, let me just, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, a while back, uh, my daughter, my three and a half year old daughter, she was three at the time, and she, she said something inappropriate. I don't remember what she said. We're sitting at the dinner table. She said something inappropriate. And my wife says to her, she says, Grace, we don't say that in this house. And her response was, well, can I say it somewhere else? We're like, you are sneaky. Right? You see? Or like my, my son, right? He, he's just, you know, he's, he's getting starting to get kind of physical and whatnot. So, you know, so if I say... Uh, Caleb, don't hit your sister. Well, then what does he do? He kicks his sister. Right? Right? Caleb, don't kick your sister. What is it? He pushes his sister. Caleb, don't push your sister. He throws his toys at his sister. Right? But if I say, Caleb, be loving to your sister. Yeah, wiggle out of that one, you sneaky little sucker. Right? What do you, how are you going to get around that one, huh? Be loving to your sister. You see, it's way more limiting, way more limiting than, than rules could ever be. The Christian governs himself by love, and that's it's way more restrictive. Love of, love of God, love of God. We restrict everything by love of God. And, and what that means to, to orient everything around love of God is to say that in everything that we do, in everything that we engage in, socially, culturally, everything that we engage in, we are always asking this question, is this thing that I'm doing, does, does it reflect my love for God? And, and is this thing that I'm doing, is it drawing my heart closer to God? Is it making me want to love and serve God more in everything that you do? In your career, in, in, the, in the, the entertainment that you watch, in the activities, the hobbies that you participate in. You see, you're always asking yourself, is, is this... Is this drawing my heart to God? Is it making me love God more? Or is it pulling me away from God? And of course, you say, well, how do you know? Like, how do you know? And, and I think, well, the first thing that I'd say is we have this thing called a conscience, which I, I think if we just listen to our conscience more, it would solve a lot of problems. Just listen to your conscience. But, but, but even, even beyond that, how, how, do you, how do you know if, if something, that, some activity that you're involved in is drawing your heart closer to God or pulling you away? And here's really what it comes down to. You have to ask yourself this thing, whatever it is, your career, your hobby, even your family, your whatever it is, you have to ask yourself this simple question. Um, Do I want it or do I need it? Do I I want it or do I need it? Because you see, the heart of the Christian faith is that the only thing you need is God. And so in everything you do, even, even good things, you have to ask yourself, do, do I want this or do I need it? You see, the person who's really growing 
in, in communion with God in their faith, you see, what will happen is you'll actually want things more, but you'll need them less. You see, it's not like, it's not like the, the more mature you get, you don't want things anymore. Like, you don't, you don't, you know, you don't want to go on vacation anymore, and I, I don't, you know, I don't want, and, you know, like, that would be, a, that, that would be a, Gnosticism moves in that direction, like, yeah, the world's bad, so we want to just kill all of our passions. The Bible isn't about killing your passions. Actually, Christians should be some of the most passionate people in the world. We should just love life. I mean, just love everything. I just love that concert. I just love that food. You know, honestly, Beth Levesque, you love everything. You do. I love this woman because she loves everything. You know, we should be people who, who just love life, and, and we're passionate about it, and we want things more and more and more. We want it more, but we need it less. You see, the, the, the marriage, you know, the, the goal of marriage is to, to point one another towards God. That's the ultimate goal. And so, you see, a marriage that's really growing, growing in godliness, it, it's a marriage where you want to be with each other more and more and more, but guess what? You need each other less. I mean, you want, I mean, because you, you want to be with them more and more and more, but you need them less. That, that career that you're in, you might want it more and more and more. I mean, you love it. There's nothing wrong with loving your job. You are passionate about it. You want it more. You want it more, but you, you need it less. Let me give you an example of how I've, I've even seen this play out in our own church. Because I would even say that the more you grow in godliness, you will want to be at church more and more. You'll want it more and more, but guess what? You'll actually need it less. Let me give you an example of how I've seen this played out in our own church. So six years ago, Laura and I came here, and one of the things that we did right off the bat pretty quickly is we changed the style of music. And this, this church, it was traditional hymns all the way through. And, and we still do hymns because I think there's a lot of value in hymns. But we changed the style. We, we're doing a bunch of contemporary music. And what has been remarkable to me, and I've shared this many times because it's something to celebrate in our church, is, that, is, is how basically nobody left the church but even though we changed all the music. It's, just no, it's like basically nobody left. And, and you might think to yourself, well, see, this is what you might think. You think, well, then that must mean that they don't really love the old hymn. Right? They must not have really loved the old hymns, right? Because if they really loved the old hymns, well, then they, you know, they'd, have, they'd leave the church, right? I mean, if they're really passionate about that and now you're not doing that anymore, well, then, of course, they're going to leave the church, right? Yeah, I'd love for you to go, go up to Lenny and Emily Pikett and Paul and Beth Levesque and Jim LaBarbera and say, hey, I guess you must not really love old hymns. You see, nobody loves the old hymns like Jim LaBarbera, Lenny and Emily Pikett. Paul and Bethel. In fact, nobody loves the old hymns more. But guess what? They, they love the old hymns. You know why they love them? Because for them, those hymns point them to God. And at the end of the day, it isn't the hymns that they love. It's the God the hymns point them to. That's what they love. And so they, they, they may want those hymns more and more. I mean, every year probably they just love those hymns and they want them more and more and more and more. But they need them You see, if you, if you want something more and you need it more, it's not pointing you to God, it's becoming an idol. Even good things, your career, your family, you want it more, you want it more, and you need it more. What that shows you is that, 
It's not pointing you to God. It's becoming an idol. So when you, when you, and, and then, okay, then how can you tell, right? How can, how, well, how can I tell if I need it or I want it? And here's, here's, here's the thing. How willing are you to give it up for others? You see, this is where love of God and love of neighbor go, go hand in hand. Right? How do you know if, if, how do I know if I love my, this hobby that I'm in? I just love doing this, whatever it is, I love it. Well, how do I know if it's, if, it's, if it's a need or it's a want? Well, how easy is it for you to give it up? How easy is it for you if, you know, you have this, this hobby that you're really into, but, but you know, your, your, your spouse is beginning to feel really neglected. How easy is it for you to give it up? You want it more, but you need it less. Your career, I mean, you, you're passionate about your career. You love it. You want it. You want to do more. You see, if it's really pointing you towards God, you may want it more, but you'll need it less. And when, if there's something that's in the way, that you're, it's, it's hindering your ability to love somebody else, you'll be able to, to give it up. See, the Christian is always asking themselves this question. Is this thing that I'm doing, whatever it is, is it drawing my heart closer to God? Or is it pulling me away? And secondly, is this thing that I'm doing, is it, is it an expression of my love for others or is it actually hindering my ability to love others? You see, that, that changes the whole thing. Then, then, then let's, let's, uh, let's apply this. Let's go back to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay? But now, the Bible doesn't restrain, doesn't restrict here, but it does have one restriction. And that's that you do everything in a loving manner. So let's go back, let's go through this. Let's start with entertainment. Right? So the, the legalist says, uh, you know, Christians shouldn't watch these kinds of movies. And the antinomian says, hey, I can watch whatever I want. Right? Uh, but the, the person who is centered on Christ and on love is asking themselves, well, when I watch this, does it, does it, does it cultivate a greater desire for God? I mean, can I really do it with thankfulness? Does it draw me closer to God? No matter what it is, no matter what it's rated. I mean, look, to be honest, I'll give you an example for me. I'm not really sure that watching Scooby-Doo is a good idea for me. I get scared. I don't know why. You know, they go into the, they go into the amusement park, and then the ghost jumps out, and, and it's, just, I, it's weird. I get scared over the strangest things. It doesn't have to be R-rated for me to get scared over it. And you've got to figure out in, in your own life and in your own heart you know, what, what is it when you, when you watch something or you participate in something? Is it, is it drawing you closer to God or is it pulling you away? And, 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 and same, is it, is it an expression of your love for others? Is it, is it actually making your heart, changing your heart in a direction that makes you less loving to others? Again, so the, the, the legalist says, you shouldn't watch these kinds of movies. Christians shouldn't watch these kinds of movies. And the antinomian says, I can watch whatever I want. Um, but the person who really loves Jesus says, you know, actually, I should probably turn this off and go help my wife with the dishes. Or if they are watching it, they're saying, okay, um, is this making me a more loving person? You know, maybe, you know, you, know, you can watch, you watch one TV show on one day and, and you're doing it, you know, you're watching this show with your grandmother because you love her. And that's an act of love. And then the next day, you're watching the same show, and your wife wants you to do the dishes. Now it's no longer loving anymore. You see, it's way more restrictive. It's limitless. The degree to which love limits our actions, it, it, rules can't even come close. See, the person who's following rules, at the end of the day, they might be able to say, yep, I did it. 
But the person who's operating by love realizes there's always, always more that you can do. So Christianity is, isn't restrictive at all. My first point. Second point, uh, Christianity is the most restrictive way of all. And thirdly, Christianity isn't restrictive at all. We see this here in verses 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, at the end of the day, the problem, the challenge between Christianity and, and, and mainstream culture is not that, it's not that, you know, one worldview is all about freedom and the other worldview is all about restricting freedom. You see, that's, that's not what it is at all. It's that there are two competing views on what freedom is in the first place. You see, in our, in our culture, freedom is this. Freedom is giving into your passions. That's what freedom is, right? You, you give into your passions. Christianity actually says this. True freedom is found in being set free from your You see this? Our world says that freedom is found in giving into your passions. But Christianity actually says, no, true freedom is found in being set free from your passions. And so here's, I think, the million-dollar question. Here's what we need to ask ourselves is this. Do you really think you can trust your passions? Do you really think that you can trust your passions to, to lead you to life? Do you really think that that's the best way to operate your life is just to give in to whatever your passions are telling you? You really think that's what's going to lead to life? And, and I'll, I'll use an obvious example of where we know this isn't true. In alcoholism, the person who, who finally comes out of alcoholism, what, what they're able to do is they're able to realize, hey, I can't trust my passions. I can't trust my desires. My desires and my passions are telling me to keep, to keep drinking, that that's going to lead to life if I just keep doing this, but I have come to see that I cannot trust my passions. And, of course, we might say, well, okay, well, that makes sense because, you know, those, those uh, desires of an alcoholic, those are destructive, but mine aren't. And I'd say, are you sure about that? Are you sure that your passions and your desires aren't destructive? First Timothy 5, in the next chapter from what I read earlier, it says that, that some people's sins are obvious. They're obvious. I mean, it just, you know, they sin, it just kind of blows up. The mayhem just happens right there in everybody's face. It's obvious. But, but other people's sins takes time for them to surface. And in that context, that's, he's encouraging uh, uh, when you're looking at elders to take your time. Because some people's sin, you know, it just blows up. You just see it right, right in their face. But other people's sin, it, it takes time to surface, Right? So, so I'd say, you know, are you sure that your passions lead to life? The heart of the gospel, the heart of the Christian message is, is simply this. If you give in to any passion, if you give in to anything other than God, it ultimately will lead to death, not to life. 
You see, again, it, it's not that we're being called to give up our passions entirely. What we're called to do is give up, give up the control, to, to, to be set free from the control of our passions. It's not that there's anything wrong with your passions. Again, we've already seen that. But what you have to ask yourself is, is that passion controlling you? What this is saying is that if anything other than God is controlling you, it's not going to lead to life. You see, at the center of this whole issue is this modern myth that there really is a such thing as freedom in the first place. You see, that, that's the myth, that there is a such thing as freedom. And, and nobody, nobody gets this better than Bob Dylan when he says, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You see, what he's articulating is he's realizing... You are a slave to something. What you think of as autonomy is not really autonomy. You're just, you're just enslaved to your passions. Well, where'd your passions come from? I don't know. You're not truly free. You're a slave to something. So the question is, are you going to be a slave to your passions, or are you going to be a slave to God? You can either be a slave to, to your passions, or you can, be, you can be a slave to the, to the love of God, to the love of God and the love of neighbor. That, that, that's the only thing that, 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 that God, when, and when you, when you love God and you love your neighbor, that, then that's the only thing that becomes restrictive of you. I, I want to go back and just, just highlight here, uh, here again, looking at sex, drugs, and rock and roll again. Uh, let's look at, at alcohol. I, I said that the Bible doesn't prohibit alcohol, doesn't restrict that. Well, it does restrict it. Love. Love. Okay, well, let's think about that. Love of God and love of neighbor. Well, the Bible actually goes and kind of unpacks that for us a little bit. And there's really two things that the Bible says about alcohol. It says, don't be addicted to wine. And it says, don't be drunk on wine. Well, think about that. What is that? You see, to be addicted to wine, what that's saying is don't love wine more than you love God. That's what addiction is. When you're addicted to anything, that thing, that's what you need, that's what you want, that's what you love more than God. And so it's saying, don't, don't love that more than you love God. And then don't get drunk on wine. Why don't you get drunk on wine? Because it's really hard to love people when you're drunk. You see, the, the Bible restricts us only on the basis of love. And I think it's important to note that that when we talk about what it means to be restricted by love, this is not just love of the person next to you. But a genuine love is, is a love of, of communities and, and a love of society. What I mean by that is that in America, we are incredibly individualistic. And so all we think about, maybe if we do think about love, well, am I loving this person and are they loving me? And, and if we're loving each other, then everything's fine. But we don't really think about, well, am I loving society as a whole? Is what I'm, what I'm doing... Maybe not just is it good for the person next to me, but is this, is this something that is good for society as a whole? And the reason why I say that is because the restrictions which the Bible puts on sexual activity will not make any sense. It won't make any sense in our culture unless we realize that it really just flows out of this desire to love not just your neighbor, but to love society as a whole. But if you really think about that, I think you'll begin to, to maybe begin to understand why the Bible talks about sex the way that it does. It's really just unpacking this broader principle of what it really means to, to love your neighbor and to love society as a whole. And this is the only thing, the only thing that restricts us. And what, what the gospel is telling you is that if you are restrained by love, that's what leads to freedom. 
The heart of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to set us free from the control of our passions and to allow us to have freedom in the spirit. Freedom in the spirit means now now Jesus' desires and Jesus' passions, they become our passions. Jesus' love for God and Jesus' love for neighbor, that becomes becomes what I love. When when we gather together to worship, you realize this this is all that we're doing every week. All that we are, are trying to do is come before God and ask the Spirit to come and cultivate in us a greater love for Him and a greater love for God because the heart of the gospel is that if you love God and you love your neighbor, that is what leads to freedom. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you that you are a God of freedom. God, we praise you that you are 100% for us. That you love us. That you have demonstrated that with the most powerful act imaginable, the giving of your life for us. God, I pray that we would, we would trust in that. We would trust in you. God, I pray that, <clears throat> that we would see that we have, to, we have to serve something. We have to be a slave to something. And I pray that we would see that being a slave to you, rather than our own desires and passions, God, I pray that we would see that that is what leads to freedom. God, I pray that we would find the freedom that comes from the restrictions of love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.